September the 8th, we said, it's not Easter. We can do it whenever we want to. And uh, one of, uh, well, Cody was going to be away the 18th, so we decided to uh, recognize back to Church Sunday today. And so I want to think about that, four imperatives of a church-going person. If you're going to make a commitment to regular participation in a local church, what are the reasons that you do that? And I think in this passage of Scripture, we'll see, you know, that it is imperative. It's vital that we uh, participate in the in a community of believers. But if you'll turn there, Hebrews 10, we're going to look at verses 23 through 25. And uh, then later, as we're going verse by verse through Hebrews, we'll get here, we'll get here again. But there the uh, Scripture says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for its truth. Even though uh, this was recorded 2,000 years or so ago, we know that it still is living and powerful, and it speaks to us right here in, uh, in our own life and situation this morning. And I pray that you'll visit us by your spirit, God, to make your uh, word alive in our ears and hearts and understanding. And we pray, Father, that you'll change us through your truth and that you'll conform us in our obedience to your truth. And we pray that you'll help us now and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many people have given up on church. There was a report that came out just this past week from, or a couple, the last couple of weeks from Pew Research. Pew Research has been doing sociological research for congregational life for a long, long time, and they indicated that by 2050, America would uh, have less than a uh, majority of people who claim to be followers of Christ or, you know, Christians. So they say the trend, and of course this is obvious to people who observe this, that the trend toward not participating in local church life has been in the wrong direction, we would say, for quite some time. And then COVID happened a few years ago. That was already the truth, I think, about North American uh, Christianity is that most of the churches were starting to experience decline, and COVID happened. And uh, when Barna and Pew Research looked at that recently, they said, and you can go to the next slide because I think it's got this information there, yeah, that there are about a third of the people who stopped attending church during COVID who have not returned. And so I think most people would say experimentally that's what they see, that they see that about a third of the people that were a part of the congregation they uh, were connected to before COVID happened just haven't come back to uh, church even though mostly it feels safe to do that. So I'm just trying to help you think through what is it? Why did people say church is not a front burner thing for me anymore? Well, another reason that I've thought about is um, institutional mistrust. Institutional mistrust. Uh, I remember as a young pastor, the first church I pastored, I went to uh, Fort Mill, South Carolina to a conference that was at uh, New Heritage USA. Does that ring a bell to anybody, New Heritage? PTL Club, Jim Baker, Tammy Faye Baker. So it was after everything had sort of collapsed there. If you're not familiar, as a uh, kid growing up, my mom watched 
the PTL club religiously, as they say. And uh, she had, like, the PTL study Bible, and she was dialed in. And I never got it, although I have to say I respected my mom's faith as much as anybody later on. But if you, you know, we lived through that uh, era of what happened in in uh, North America. So uh, when I went to this particular conference, they were basically building Christian Disneyland in Fort Mill, South Carolina. That's what it was, timeshares. There were tower cranes on the property because it was spooky. It was like all after uh, Jim Baker had been convicted of defrauding people, that's what happened, and was sent to prison, this thing was still there, like this attempt at utopia that turned into dystopia, basically. It was still there. And so I went to this conference. There was like a little mall there and a water park, and it was just... It was interesting. Uh, Billy Graham School of Evangelism and Church Growth is what I was attending there. And so I thought, well, Billy Graham's always safe. And it was good content, and I learned a lot. But it was the first time that I really started to think about how the world was becoming post-Christian. If uh, you were around during that time, as I was a young Christian at that time, and a young pastor, Jimmy Swaggart. You know, stuff like this was happening. It still does happen where prominent evangelicals ended up in scandal. And then you add alongside that the that uh, in Catholicism, you had the scandal of pedophilia and molestation, and all that stuff happened in North America. At the same time, we were becoming a postmodern. Uh, we were entering postmodernism as a trend, which is just patently mistrustful of institutions maybe because of things like that you know we just don't trust institutions we don't grant to and in fact you can think of it like this it used to be that people would say who do you respect in the community well we respect the police we respect pastors we respect you know people that were in official capacities but n not now the same the, it's turned upside down exactly for people to say we don't trust any of those institutions anymore we don't trust law enforcement we don't trust the church we don't trust anybody and some of that is self-imposed that's why i said we live in the pools and eddies uh you know that of the fallout of that that kind of scandalous stuff that happened and so people will say if that's what church is why do i need that so I, you know i just i've thought about wh what happens to people why do they say no thanks you know church isn't for church hurt is another thing I think that happens and you think about what church is what do you expect to find here if you come to church what are you hoping to experience well you hope that I know what got me there you know was eventually the sense that there was something that I needed that I couldn't manufacture out of my own effort there was something bigger and that had to do with ultimate meaning and it wasn't present with me and so I found it in Jesus and then in spiritual community with other people. And, but when we, when we, what we assign as being ultimate, that's what God is. God is ultimate because he created and sustains and upholds the worlds. And he came to rescue us out of our junk. And that's ultimate. But when people experience deep disappointment and hurt in church, their tendency is to withdraw. 
again, you know, if this is what it means to be in community with people, if, you know, you end up hurt, then I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that that's what happens at times. People say, you know, I don't need that in my life. Another reason I think we would say people withdraw from uh, community is adulting, right? Adulting, busyness, where we're meeting ourselves coming because of all the commitments that we have in our life. You know, it, uh, we're not raising little kids anymore. You know, our kids are raising a, a kid now. But I, I remember, you know, trying to get kids off to chorus and football and, you know, different events before they could drive. And, and uh, you know, our life, our lives are busy. Vocational responsibility and family responsibility. And it just, you know, this the law that's mentioned there, Parkins Law says, Parkinson's law says time, the work allowed or allotted always swells to fill the time that's available. And that's how life feels. You know, we have all these modern conveniences and digital help and everything, and we, we're still exhausted and overwhelmed. And so sometimes people go, here's what I'm, I'm going to leave out, spiritual community. And then, you know, one of the things that I think it's just the, uh, the cultural zeitgeist. Zeitgeist means the spirit of the times. The spirit of the times is away from and not into participation in spiritual community. Just like I said in the beginning, this is a quote from a missiologist named Alan Roxburgh who said that if you were born after 1984, this is what it boils down to, there is currently a 10% chance that you are in church. So if you were born after 1984 and you're in church, you're the proverbial unicorn. That's what the society is, you know, that's where we've headed. And yet, and yet, the church is still as vital to God's plan for your life and family as it ever was. So when we look at this passage, that's what I want us to see is how the, the Scripture shows us that we still need spiritual community. We still need a church family and participation and relationships that speak to something that is ultimate, to, that speaks to God and God's purpose. And so when we look at this passage, that's why what I see here is four imperatives of uh church go in person in other words if which i have for i came to faith in christ in 1987 and church has been my default thing ever since you know i, I uh, started in vocational ministry in 1992 but before that our commitment was we were involved in a church family spiritual community so what is it that is going to be true in your life if you keep this commitment. I think these are the issues that we see here where the writer here says, don't flake out, don't abandon the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some people is. He says, if you are going to do this, here's how you do it. So first in this passage, you see that a person who has a commitment to spiritual community has an unwavering confession of hope, an unwavering confession of hope. That's what he says here in this passage. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. He says, that person that keeps a commitment to spiritual community is, uh, is doing this. 
we aren't ignorant of the faults of the church. But at the same time, we're not blind to our own faults. That's what's true about me. I'm not, I mean, I worked in a ministry for years that was alongside local churches, so it seemed like every problem that I encountered was horrible. You know, something went sideways, and you were there to help people to recapture something better. So I've seen what they, the underbelly. You know, I think if you've been in church more than a few years, you start to see the underbelly. That because there are people together in spiritual community, there are automatically problems, right? Do you know any people that don't have problems? And then you put everybody together in community with all your different backgrounds and experiences and, and uh, conflict that just happens because everybody has conflict. And, and that's what it starts to look like. There are problems. So we're not blind to the problems in the church. We're also just not blind to the fact that we also have problems and faults. And so we grow to view it differently if we're going to keep the commitment to community. One of the uh, earliest, again, Christian books I ever read was uh, by, by C.S. Lewis. It was called Screwtape, Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've ever read that book. But it's like basically written from a senior tempter, a demon, to his nephew, Screwtape. And he instructs him about how to take his charge and to derail his fate. That's what the book is about. It's a fictional idea of how demons think about Christians. And he, he says to his nephew in talking through like what he's trying to help him understand how to get his patient that is the Christian that this demon is designed to derail out of his spiritual routines and norms. And one of the things is that he wants him to think about church incorrectly. Like, to how do I view the people that I'm in church with? And, he, and one of the characters thinks this way or muses. He says, if I, being what I am, consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention. He says, we think about the people around us, all oh, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. But me, myself, I don't have any flaws or faults at all. I'm crossing the D's and uh, the T's and dot the I's, right? And C.S. Lewis says that there's a way of viewing the church that makes one a critic when God wants us to be pupils. That's a healthier way to think about congregational life. Instead of being a critic, I'm a pupil, I'm a learner, along with the other learners. You know, that's really the biblical idea of discipleship. A disciple is a learner. It's a person with a commitment to growth and a, a commitment to working out their maturity. It's weird to me to think that, like, I'm 59, I'll be 60 in May next year, and how far I have to go, you know. I have that awareness about myself that I have a long way to go. And, and I find that being in community with other people is an aid to me. It assists me in that. So how do you participate in a group of people that are flawed and that have the same hang-ups and problems that you have and it not destroy your faith? He says, let us confess our, you know, hold fast to our the hope that we've confessed. The hope that we've confessed. So it's by keeping my eyes on Jesus, not on the people around me, that
that's a big a big help. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that set before that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, it says, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I keep my eyes on Jesus when I'm at my best. I remember that Jesus is the object of my faith, not the people around me. Although I hope good things for them, and I think it's fair to expect that the trajectory in our, our discipleship is toward maturity. I think that's a fair expectation. It's how we should be trying to live our lives, but my hope and confidence is in Jesus and not in anybody else. I remember reading uh, Dallas Willard said that uh, we, he says, I've discovered God's address. It's at the end of my rope. He says, I've discovered God's address. It's at the end of my rope. And I think when we properly understand church, what it is is a collection of people who found God's address at the end of their rope. We got out there where we knew our stuff wasn't working. And what we found was someone who could lift us up and hold us and who could forgive us and give us a new start again and again and again. So we found his address. It was at the end of our rope. But secondly, in this passage, I think what you find is a person who uh, is going to keep a commitment as a churchgoer, uh, participating in the life of a spiritual community, has confidence in God's faithfulness. Because uh, it you know, goes on there and it says, uh, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who, he who promised. He who promised is faithful. So the one who's made promises to us, again, is faithful. You know how in life sometimes you have um, benchmark experiences or, you know, things that are groundbreaking? I had a conversation like that. It was uh, groundbreaking for me at Barnes & Noble in Savannah years ago. I probably shared this story, but it's groundbreaking. It was for me. Uh, Frankie and I both like to read. Our Probably an ideal date for us would be to go eat somewhere and then go to Barnes and & Noble and hang out and get something from the Starbucks while we're there and just peruse a bunch of books. So that's kind of like what we enjoy. And we were there once, and this guy approached me while I was looking for books, and he's like, do you like science fiction? <laughs> it's kind of like talking to me in the aisle, you know. And I'm like, if it's well written, you know, I, I like science. I like Philip K. Dick, you know, good science fiction writer. Um but it turned out that this guy was an author on a tour, and he was from England. And so, you know, he and I started talking, and after a while, the conversation, I do not remember exactly how, took a spiritual turn. And what, what uh, was obvious to me is that he was disappointed with God because he was like, here's how I know, because he starts telling me the details in his life, and he said, my wife has dementia, and he was older than me. And his mom had died of cancer. And basically, what I took away from the things that he was telling me as we were talking about God is that his attitude could be summarized in three words, basically. Some good God. That's what he thought. My wife has dementia. My mom's died of cancer. Some good God. If this is the God that you're trying to pitch to me, which I thought it was fair to talk about God if he was going to talk to me about buying his book, you know. But... Um, 
It was the first time I ever really thought this way. What if God feels about your wife's dementia and your mother's cancer exactly as you do? What if that's what God is like and not the way that you think he is? And so, you know, I know that didn't come from me, but it was what came out of my mouth. And then you see that in the psalm. Psalm 147 verse 3 says that God heals the brokenhearted. Do you want to know how God feels about your broken heart? That's what the psalm writer says. He heals the brokenhearted. Not that he crushes the broken. See, he's near to the brokenhearted. And I think that helps us to have a completely different ex uh, experience of God. It won't satisfy anybody's objection that he can't be all-powerful if he stands by for that kind of shenanigans or whatever. I know that people think that. If God's all-powerful, why does stuff like that happen? Well, the Christian perspective is he didn't just stand by. He didn't stand by. The, the Bible says that what God did instead was to put on flesh and blood and bone and come into the world. He didn't stand by and leave us in our mess. In fact, he so despised the brokenness and alienation that he took the journey from heaven to earth and became a human being and took our place and took our grief and took our brokenness and our sin on himself and allowed himself to be judged in our place and then the Bible says after he accepted the punishment for our sin he was raised from the dead and that God is the one that ever lives to make intercession for you he's the one that prays and cares and helps so I think sometimes it's the concept that we have of God that's unhelpful I think it was true in that situation so how do you keep the commitment to community? Well, this is one way. You keep confidence in God's faithfulness. You have the right concept of what he's like according to what he said about himself in the Bible. But also commitment to others in spiritual community is a key. Commitment to others in spiritual community. That's what the, he goes on and he says, let us consider one another that we might stir each other up to love and good works you think about the people that you're in community with differently stir that word consider is an interesting word in the passage it's it means to look more closely to look more closely you know what you can't do from home you can't know that person who you're interacting with over donuts and coffee in in in, in the same way so you have to leave home. Proximity, proximity comes into play. You have to leave home. And you have to be with people. And then the Bible says in doing that, you stir each other up to love and good works. So I don't, you know, when I come to be with other people at uh, this location for church to be worshipers, I don't know if anybody's ever said to me, keep it up, this really matters, you know. You, do, you don't quit, but that's what I go away with is an understanding that that's what's true. That, that I'm, so I am stirred up by being with other people. I'm stirred to love. 
you know, I'm starting to think about the relationships, not only in my church community, but otherwise, because, you know, I know God continually is urging me toward love in my family and love with people that I encounter all over. I had a really negative experience this week driving, and I, after I calmed down, I knew that those, the people that were, I got four birds out of a car window, each window this week. I was like, huh. One, be a more patient driver. Two, once I could calm down and think about it, those are still people who need the love of God in Jesus Christ. So we're always being, what, what learning and being a disciple of Jesus, knowing scripture, living in community does for me is it teaches me how to love supernaturally. Because there's stuff all the time that's not within my grasp that only God can do. So we stir each other up to love and good works. So good works are things, I love Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. I've quoted this passage over and over and will continue to do so. It says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God decides what are good works. And sometimes they are very basic, everyday kinds of things. Good works, I think, are helping each other at home with dishes and laundry and considerate kinds of everyday sort of things. It's helping and looking out for each other in relationships all the time. That's good works. There are specific works that God has in mind for his kingdom that we encourage each other toward. Prayer is one of those, you know, works that we do. We think of prayer as it's a way that we're obeying Christ. And anything that he tells us to do in scripture that requires obedience is a work. It's a way that we're we're fleshing out our discipleship and we're following Jesus. And the Bible says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're fleshing that out. And it says to stir each other up because our flesh is involved in our discipleship too. And we have to get it out of the way. And it's easy to become indifferent and cynical and callous. And that's why it says stir each other up. Because all that, all that can get in the way of our discipleship the good works and then in this passage we see their commitment to each other in spiritual community our commitment means that we consistently meet for worship in the bible the one of the usual words for church is ecclesia it's where ecclesiastical or ecclesiology would you know the idea would come from but what the word meant was gather to gather to gather to gather so if there's no understanding of church that we take away from the Bible that doesn't include being together with other followers of Jesus. Church is not this building. We've said that over and over again, although this building is a place where you'll make memories with other people like Zach's baptism. That's awesome. You know, it's a place that we can, you know, we'll make memories, but it's not the church. The church is us. It's the people that come here. And one of the most unfortunate developments is what I described in the beginning 
in contemporary Western society is the lack of imagination about what spiritual uh, connection means that's led so many people to abandon the practice of public worship. The, when we think about what the church is, it is regular, deliberate, habitual meeting together with other Christians. That's why the passage says, do not forsake what? The assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but continue to come together and so much more as you see the day drawing near. So when Christians come together, we pray. How many times have we prayed in the service already? At least four times. Guess what? Before church started, we met and prayed uh, with a group of you know, 10 or 12 people for a little while before church. Why? Because that's where God works. God works through our praying. He tells us to pray and we pray. But part of what we do as we gather together is to pray. Part of what we experience is discipleship. It's neat, like during the week, this week, there were Bible studies that happened here where groups of people came together and connected and shared scripture and shared their lives in a learning process so you know that's what happens when we're together is discipleship and learning and growth and and uh, I just think you know I've said this before but everybody ought to be connected to some small group ministry as much as you possibly can because it's just different than hearing me talk <laughs> you're not you're never going to get what you can get in small group ministry in the big room you, you need it everybody does so, you know, seeking that out is important, but it's one of the things that happens is you're committed to local church and then uh, hearing the word taught and preached, the practice of generosity in a deliberate way, the observance of the ordinances of baptism and communion. Each fifth Sunday we celebrate Lord's Supper, and today we celebrated baptism. And baptism is meant to be done in public worship. It's a way of identifying with Jesus as a follower of Jesus because he told us to, to be obedient and, and communion. Some of these things you're unlikely to do without a local church to help you, and some of them you're not supposed to do without a local church to help you. So we need the local church. And then the last thing this passage shows us is that devotion to uh, a person who is going to have the deliberate habit of connecting with other people will be devoted to God's transcendent reality because that is the last thing the passage says here it says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves uh, together but keep coming together and it says so much the more as you see the day some translations put that a big capital in, because it, uh, on the D there the day what day the day of the return of Jesus that's the day that's the day when the world is going to be uh, completely different and, and changed forever. And the Bible says that one of the commitments that local congregations have is that we believe in the biblical teaching of the second advent of Christ. We believe that Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and he said to his disciples, uh, or the angel said after Jesus ascended up into heaven, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing heavenward? He said, this same Jesus in like manner is going to return. He says, Jesus is, going to, Jesus is going to return. That's the second advent. So we live in a pause, P 
P-A-U-S-E, pause, between that ascension and his return. And he'll return. And the Bible says all kinds of things about us being ready and us living with anticipation, but it's what's in front of us that we, we think about is that culmination of history will occur. God is in control of history. God will culminate history. He'll conclude it in the way that he sees fit in his timing and he encourages us toward faithfulness. And the passage says that if anything, our faith in Jesus should uh, result in more worship. Listen, more worship, not less. More commitment, not less or none. <laughs> it says, as you see the day approaching, keep coming together more and more. Be connected. Why does faith in God and life in community have to be so hard? Well, let me ask you this. All the good, helpful things in your life, your marriage, is that easy? Is it uncomplicated? No. Not for honest people. Marriage is hard and complicated at times. Is it a blessing? Yes. But it's you know, there's not an easy button. So we think about the, the worthwhile commitments in our life. Show me an easy one. Show me one that doesn't make you get out of bed early usually <laughs> and have to make unusual adjustments to do it. There, there aren't any. You know, when we think about the worthwhile things in our life, they are costly. Well, listen to what Jesus said. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. He didn't say, oh, there's an easy button, you know, you can push. No, it's going to be costly. It's going to cause you to have to re-examine your priorities and decide that what God intended when he gave us a model for how to live our life as followers of Jesus included that this priority of connection and being a part of a a church family. And so we're inviting you back. That's what today was for. If it's been a while or you've struggled with this kind of commitment, we're inviting you back, back to your first love. That's what Jesus said to some people in the Bible. He says, this is what I hold against you is that you left the love that you had at first. So you had this passionate love for me. You left it. So he, this is what he said to them in that passage. He says, I want you to remember from where you've fallen and to return. So I want you to return. I want you to come back to that kind of love for me. There's only one person who provides salvation. The Bible says, there's, uh, the disciples said, there is not salvation in any other uh Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that's a part of this appeal today, too, is sometimes what we have to say is, like, I missed that. The linchpin of faith is to know Jesus and to understand him and to be rightly related to him as the only one who can forgive sins because he paid the price for sin and was raised from the dead. So Maybe today for you it's a call to a public step of commitment. 
We're going to have our uh, musicians come, our praise team. I'm going to pray. We'll have a time of commitment. It may be that there's a response that you need to make uh, during this time, and uh, I'll be standing in the front to pray with you if that's helpful to you, and let's pray. God, we're truly grateful to you today for the mercy and the kindness that uh, brought us into your spiritual family. And I pray for us, God, that you'll use this these moments and your word to uh, just challenge us to go back to the love that we had at first. It may be that somebody comes here every week and still has left the love that they had at first. And so I just pray that you'll help us today. And I pray, Father, that we'll be sensitive to your voice and that we'll respond to you in obedience. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.